Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Um, welcome to The Poetry Project. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Stacy Smazik, the director here. Wow, thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> thank you. Um, we're very pleased, very honored to be hosting this memorial to remember and celebrate Ted Greenwald's life and work. He was, of course, deeply connected to the Poetry Project, officially having served on the board of directors for many years and editing the Poetry Project's newsletter and deeply connected socially as a working poet who hung out here and read here and listened here. This was and is his poetry home. We are joined tonight in this room that he inhabited literally hundreds of times by some of his loved ones who will be sharing stories about him and reading some of his poems their names are listed in your program, which was made by his daughter, Abby. Thank you so much, Abby, for making this. Thank you also to Joan for doing the work of bringing us together. Um, thank you to Miles Champion and Kit Robinson for your beautiful pieces that are in the Poetry Project newsletter, which um, yeah, some of you probably have read them. They're really so moving in the, ba in the back and the desk. Please take, take several. We have many, so don't, don't be shy. Take them. Um, the order tonight will be uh, Abby Greenwald, Lee Finkel, Maggie Greenwald, Alan Bernheimer, Charles Bernstein, Miles Champion, Alan Davies, Ryan Eckes, Ed Friedman, John Godfrey, Erica Hunt, Michael Lally, Ron Paget, Arlo Quint, Kit Robinson, Kyle Schlesinger, Patricia Spears-Jones, myself, Chris Tisch, Louis Warsh, and Barrett Watton, and concluding with Terrence Winch, did I say that right, Terry? Win? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then we will continue. The wine will continue, and we'll bring out some, some cheese and crackers after. So please, I hope everybody will stay after and celebrate with us. Um, please welcome Abby Greenwald. Hi, um, I'm Abby. Um, I'm Ted's daughter. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for ev to everybody who's here, um, everybody who's come out to show their love and support, and to Stacy for putting this all together, and for everybody who's helped to put this all together. Um, I, I'm I'm very glad that this service is taking place here. I couldn't think of a better place for it to be. Um, I've been coming to the poetry project and its various and sundry programs since I I guess probably before I can remember. I don't know, I have sort of vague memories of coloring on tables with the ear in during readings with crayons that they used to leave out. So they used to leave out the big, you know, butcher paper on the tables, you know, while I guess poets were going and going or falling asleep on the, you know, plastic chairs while Poets were coming up one after another during the New Year's Day reading, which, as you know, goes on for 12 plus hours and is pretty magical. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I'm going to say a, a few words about my dad. Um, excuse me if it's a little bit stilted. Um, I guess, I mean, I miss my father terribly. Um, 
I, you know, up in, right up until, I guess, a couple days before he um, went into the hospital for the last time, he was still writing. I recall, you know, um, the artist Henry Matisse, when he was towards the end of his life and had his hands riddled with arthritis, he couldn't paint with paints anymore, so he began doing his uh, famous um, collages using a scissors and um, paper from his bed. And um, I sort of saw, I guess, that same magical love of the, of the, of the artistic spirit in my father. He was writing up until that he up until the very end, and it was astounding to me. Um, I think uh, you know I, I I told him before there's something almost um, you know rabbinical in his love of the written word and in his love of language poetry. Uh, our family is Jewish, and um, I guess more on the secular end, but. Um, I always, <laughs> there's really something in that tradition that is, um, you know, it, within that tradition, it's, it's uh, there's a tradition of um, sort of analyzing ideas and debating the meaning of things and the spoken word and the meaning of the letters in the Torah. And I almost, when I, when I think of my dad's work, think of, breaking down each syllable of spoken human language and trying to interpret it right down to its very quintessence, which to me almost, it's like trying to find the magic in the text or become as close to the magic in the text as possible at deconstruction. Um, my father and New York City were practically inseparable. He was born here and I, you know, when he, he used to, we used to go on drives of Queens where he grew up and we'd be driving around Bayside and his stories about it would remind me, it would almost sound like another, another, a completely other world. Like, you know, sort of like this, like bucolic Huck Finn version of <laughs> Bayside where young kids go swimming and fishing and, you know, ride their bikes through the, you know, the, the apple trees and things, which is really not what you would find today if you were to take the seven train to the last stop and get off at Flushing Main Street. But um, there was, my father loved the world. He loved people. When I remember my grandma describing him as a very little boy going through the park and waving at people and beaming and going, hi, friend. And I can't think of a better statement to describe my father than high friend. To my dad, the world was full of potential friends. I have never met a person who could make friends literally anywhere. He made friends at Starbucks. He made friends if he was hanging out on the front steps. He made friends everywhere he worked. And he genuinely loved and was invested in the lives of people of so many different backgrounds and genders and ages that it um, he he approached the world in such an open and excited and positive way and I think 
I have never seen a better example of somebody who's lived life literally to the fullest. Like, you know, almost like licking the plate of life, it tastes that good. And I think it's how I want to live my life. Um, I, it's how I aspire to live my life, uh, to find reverence in my fellow man and to find reverence in every moment and to make every moment as magical as possible or searching for that magic in every moment. Anyway, there are many speakers here tonight who are you know, going to be sharing and um, thank you to everybody who is attending and could attend and who is participating and helped to put this together. Uh, the next speaker is an old family friend, um, Lee Finkel, who I'd like to introduce. Oh, so thank you so much. Thanks, Abby. Um, while I was sitting here waiting, I was reading this piece by Kit Robinson on his remembrances of Ted, and I was astounded at how similar they were to myself, how he recommended um, Ross Thomas to him and to, and to me, Donald Westlake, um, uh, you name it, and, and, and how he read Raoul Hilberger, and they discussed it. I even went one further. I spent two nights, almost eight hours, watching Shoah by Claude Lanzmann with Ted. We would go see those kind of films together. We once saw an eight-hour film called My Hitler. I can't remember the authors of that, but we had to take a break and, and go eat dinner and then go back and watch this thing. And uh, Somehow Ted and I were caught up in this type of thing. But um, Ted, Ted was someone who knew more about everything than anyone I ever knew. I met him in 1968. He had just come back from Paris, and he had seen what was going on in the uprising there. And, um, and I met him in the reading room of uh, the graduate school at NYU. He was still thinking about a, a PhD there, and, um, and then he said, I'm just writing poetry, that was good enough. But uh, the first remembrance I have of him, and we sat around this table, several of us, and he always had a cup of coffee and a cigarette, and he was deeply engrossed in his reading and taking some notes, and he'd always drink the coffee and not look at it, and after a while he'd start flicking his cigarette in the <laughs> coffee cup, and I was always waiting for him to drink the coffee and start choking, but he never did. He had a sense <laughs> when, when a, you know, that was it. Um, and as I said, Ted knew everything. Uh, and once I asked him, just to, I heard something once, and I knew he wouldn't know this. And I said, do you know what a fireman's hat is made out of? And he said, leather. And I couldn't believe he, he knew that. <laughs> I had never heard of that. Um, he knew everything. I told him I was reading a book on the Albigensian Crusade, and he said, Oh, you're reading about the Cathars, and I had never heard of the Cathars before I picked up this book. <laughs> he knew that. Um, uh, there was nothing, and it was great in the age before Google. You know, you'd go to Ted, <laughs> ask him something, and he was, he knew everything. Um, but he did turn me on to these books, Ross Thomas and the others, and um, uh, he also turned me on to his poetry. 
uh, within a short time after I met him, he gave me one of his recent publications. And I made the mistake, I'm a historian, and I wasn't good at poetry. So, you know, I got to know Ted Dubin, and I started asking him, what did he mean by this? And he looked at me and said, whatever you want it to mean, it's okay. Uh, so I knew never to ask him again. But after I went to the first reading that he did, I knew what his poetry meant. And every time I read it, I read it in his voice. I could hear him reading it. And then I understood it, um, if you can understand it. I mean, I just, it was just, the words were, the way he pronounced them were terrific. Um, Ted and I, again, go back 48 years. And uh, we often did things together. He was working so he can do his poetry, and I was working between jobs. Teaching was um, uh, hard to get a job teaching in those days. And uh, we slept bundles of village voice once a week. We met at about 4 o'clock in the morning over on 7th Avenue. A big trailer came down filled with bundles, and he and I were on the truck and we deliver these bundles, and it was up to a dollar and a quarter, and our pockets were bulging with money then. And uh, we did that uh, until I got a job, and then he continued to do it, and uh, he did it for several years. Um, also, he got me into proofreading, Prager Press. They were funded by the CIA, but uh, <laughs> we, we were reading these books and, and proofreading them, and um, then I said to Ted, once we were, we were doing this, we didn't do it together, but we saw each other. And um, I said, I just bought a book. I was always fascinated when I was a kid of the opposite side of the checkerboard was the backgammon thing, which Kit mentions here too. And I said, I'm learning how to play backgammon. He said, oh, you want to play? Of course, of course, he knew how to play. <laughs> so he came over uh, three or four times a week, and we played. And there's the doubling cube, for those of you who know how to play. And you have to gamble to play, and Ted was a gambler. But we only played for a nickel a, a turn, you know. So it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. Uh, so we, we played um, uh, backgammon, we slept the village voice, we uh, proofread Prager press publications. I don't know why the CIA would have funded these things. They were so <laughs> boring. It's just so boring, and you you know, it was hard to proofread them. Um, and then Ted and I had a, another life of uh, the coffee shops. Um, I had moved out away for a couple of years, came back to New York, and uh, there was a cafe across the street from me, and it was called Pani and Chocolate, and we would meet there first on the weekends, and then even more, had coffee all the time, and he began bringing Abigail over on the weekends, and we'd have coffee. Abigail grew up with us drinking coffee. In fact, the first words I heard Abigail speak, I bumped into Joan at uh, Dante's, another one of our coffee shops. And Abigail was sitting there, it was really small, and the waiter walked by and she said, cappuccino. <laughs> I had never heard that before. Um, and, um, and then I hadn't seen Abigail for several years, and I was in a Another place, a coffee place I want in the afternoon called Joe. And someone came up to me, and I'm sitting down and said, Lee? I looked up, and it took me a second, and it was Abigail working at, I guess, her pl your present place. 
So I said, sit down, and then we used to see each other there once in a while for a period. So I had this whole cycle of coffee with uh, Ted and um, Abigail. Uh, Joan never came, but I remember when Ted said he was seeing a girl in Philadelphia, a girl, I'm sorry, a woman in Philadelphia. And um, I said, great, because I'm from Philadelphia. And, and, uh, and eventually, Joan moved up and married Ted. And uh, it was like a, a double victory for her. She married Ted and got out of Philadelphia, <laughs> followed my footsteps, you know. So um, we go back um, a really long way. And uh, at first, um, Pani and Chocolato, and then we went to Dante's for about 10 years. And it was a whole crew of us that used to get together. And then, you know, people move on. And then we had coffee at a place called Angelique. That was the last place to have coffee. And till Mumbles. I had coffee with Mumbles. And Kit, again, talks about Mumbles here, you know. Um, so it was almost a lifelong experience with Ted. And... Um, uh, we did many other things, too. I can hardly remember. We, we had a card game once for about two years. Um, and once a week, we'd play cards. Um, we used to play football for about five seasons, football seasons. Uh, a choose-up game in um, where the NYU gym is now being torn down. Before it went up, it was an open field, and we played football. So there were choose-up games. And everyone wanted to be the quarterback except Ted. He liked to be on the line and, and you know, bounce off these other guys. <laughs> you know, he was physical in that way. He really liked that. Um, and um, so uh, I've spent a lifetime uh, almost knowing Ted, Abby's lifetime, and Joan's marriage. Um, and it's been just a great experience for me. And... Um, uh, when Ted passed, it was like, you know, the end of something for me, really very important. Um, but I still have a whole shelf of just about every one of Ted's publications. He always gave me a publication. And um, I also, one I, before I forget, I, I knew Bill and Shirley, and these, every time I came here to hear Ted read, they were here. They never missed uh, a reading. And, uh, and they were great, too. We used to see Bill walking around at 5 in the morning when we were delivering a voice. He couldn't sleep uh, until one day he got mugged. And then I guess Shirley wouldn't let him go out and walk around at 5 in the morning anymore. Um, but anyway, it's been a great privilege and pleasure for me to know Ted, and Abby, and Joan, and I did know Maggie, um, not the other two sisters. When I first saw Maggie, she was, I guess, 15 or 16, you know, in 68. Would that put you at that age? Younger. Younger, okay. <laughs> well, you were always mature for your age. Okay. Well, with that, I'll um, introduce Maggie uh, to say some words of Ted, and thank you all. Uh, thanks, Lee, very much. Um, I think there's probably a lot of, uh, or a bunch of people who uh, I don't recognize, and I'm sorry, but that I've known since I was a little girl. 
I'm sure you don't recognize me, but I'm, um, uh, I'm really happy to be here and happy that you are here also. I, was, I am Ted's baby sister and um, I adored him for my whole life, uh, even when I, he was infuriating and I hated him. And um, uh, my earliest memories, um, I must have been about four or five, he, my mother had given him the basement of our house as his room and he'd hung his faux Jackson Pollocks on the walls and I used to like sticking my finger in the, um, the mushy globs that had just a thin skin of dry paint over them. And um, I was really lucky because I was the only one he kind of let into his world, I think because I, probably because I was so much younger. And uh, I remember hanging out there with him and some of his friends in Bayside and um, he'd let me roll cigarettes for him with his cigarette maker and sometimes he'd uh, pay me a nickel to give him a massage. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and then when um, we moved to the city when I was 14, um, he really opened an incredible world to me because that's when he and his friends and many of you guys were creating Soho. And um, he was very close friends with Gordon Mata Clark. So my early teenage years were spent in this incredible world of Gordon's restaurant food and, um, the, and Green Street Gallery and here. Um, I've been, been coming here um, since we moved to Manhattan when I was 14, so that was 1969. And... Um, uh, my relationship, of course, as any re relationship with a sibling grew quite complicated, and um, in my early 20s, I began to realize that he wasn't always right. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, even though he continued to be certain he was, and uh, those of you who know him know he was always certain he was right. And, um, and then, honestly, by the time I was in my late 20s, um, uh, I actually realized that I pretty much disagreed with him about most things. <laughs> and so, you know, as, um, as I grew up, uh, you know, we, we didn't spend quite as much time together, but... Um, he has always been, um, even through periods of, you know, wanting to kill him and hating him, and he has been truly one of the loves of my life. And um, I just want to say that uh, I, Ted's death was one of the most courageous things I've ever seen in my life. I've never thought of him as a courageous man. I've thought of him as many wonderful things and many really awful things, but I've never thought of him as courageous. And I have never um, seen anyone choose and realize their own death and experience their own death the way my brother did. 
And uh, I saw in those moments in hospice, um, because his Joan is so shy, it was very, and not around at a lot of events, it was hard to really under know what their relationship was, but I saw the most incredible love between the two of them as she helped him fulfill what he wanted to, which was to die in the way he chose because, you know, he wasn't going to let it happen any other way. Um, anyway, uh, I cannot be in this space really without um, hearing my brother's voice and I can't imagine you guys don't want to hear his voice too. So if you can bear it, um, I have a recording of him reading something that I'd like to play. Whiff. An evening spent talking, spent thinking about what my life would be if I'd stayed with a particular girl or woman I went with. What would be if I'd have been accepted to and gone where I applied to a different school than the one I did, where I'd learned different social graces than the ones I have, where some of the material values of the American dream had rubbed off enough to make me live it out in the good work sense, if I'd settled down and settled for the foundation on a house for future generations instead of assuming immediately past generations, mine found, my foundation of mine, if I'd been a little quicker to learn what was expected of me, and wanting to please, please, going on that way through all eternity. I've probably been saved from mere routines by a streak of stubbornness, by a slow mind and tendency to drift, by an emotional development that requires my personal understanding before happening, feeling out the implications as emotion has in form of expectation before trying out and after awareness. I sense a willingness to tell someone I know and like and sense the same from anything they'd like to know about me and at the same time have a vast sense of privacy, which means there's no way I'll wear out my personality and a sense of continuity, although sometimes I feel empty. But talking to someone I like and trust and sense the same from, I feel way up, and after a long evening of talk about this and that, feel wide awake and feel the world wide and awake around me, and have a visual intensity in memory that in near memory dulls and throbs and grows vivid as hell. When I bring it to mind sometime from then, what my life would have been like under different circumstances would have been different with its own attendant ifs and its own what might have been. But this way, I've elected to follow and cast my vote each waking day, and I avoid the possibility of taking the past too seriously or feeling any bitterness or sadness. This way, when my ship comes in, I'll have passed out of mind beyond the sight of land. And without hesitation, and won't hesitate for a second to look back on, on this with fondness or remiss. The air, the air will be clear, the moon will be there, and you, whoever you are and hope to be, will be here with my love. Rest in peace, Teddy. to introduce the next person. <laughs> um, I look forward to hearing all of you, uh, my brother's partners in crime, read uh, Alan Bernheimer. I'm pretty sure I'll always have the, the voice of Ted in my head now that I don't have him in my life anymore. 
I was a young, very young poet, hanging around the church in 69 and 70 when I was befriended by Ted. And he gave me my first reading in New York uh, at the 98 Green Street Loft, which he was directing for Holly Supplement, a, a monster reading, I'm pretty sure it was called. I'm going to read a, a section from his work, Outlying Districts from the Age of Reasons. Um, if you haven't read the work, it's sort of a, a record of consciousness over a day or so, maybe a day. He's out walking around, he's reminiscing about his job, filling uh, syrup at the candy store soda fountain, finally gets to graduate and learn to actually make sodas. And then he comes home, um, prepared to spend the evening in cooking dinner, doing a little reading, maybe watch some tube. I washed the dishes, straightened out the living room, put the tan pillows on the couch back in place, straightened the rug with the garden in it, surrounded by burgundy, poured myself a beer, lit a joint, made a cup of coffee, mixed a drink, brewed a pot of tea, cut a morsel of meat, filled a pipe with opium, turned on the television, picked a record I wanted to hear, changed my clothes, and opened one of several books I was reading at the time. The sky outside and the one I was thinking about turned with envy, I don't know, a horrible green, my mind was sucked between the covers and obliterated the voice of the narrator that bounced from crag to crag in a sunset of incomparable written roses. Noses began to bleed spontaneously and verbs went out of toes. A voice in the backyard, I got up to look out, said to a wandering cat, hey, what are you doing? You'll ruin my garden. The cat kept going. I learned to like particularly the color of the cast of thought I was thinking. Different years out of the past accompanied different years in the present to provide a ground of memory upon which to pattern existence. One minute like a leaf. One minute a leaf-like pattern blending into general petalness. Rising and sinking like hope is the only way I'll describe my experiences. To say that evening provided a resume is to speak too soon. In mid-paragraph, remembering the mail I'd forgotten to read, I went to my desk, sat down, and sorted through. I, I won't waste your time telling you what kind of shit was there and I didn't want to read. I put each of the pieces in some order of interest, which was and is low, cut open envelopes, read, tore, and threw away. Something it had taken years to prepare me for was in the making. If you look behind you, you might, uh, some night, if you look behind you some night on a quiet, almost deserted street, you'll have some idea how I felt. The velvet of my feelings provided a canvas upon which I felt a horse glowing with the wan eyes of a child. I embraced and was embraced in turn by that light creature. My hands were knobs and my mind the machine they tuned. I was grounded in philosophical principles and intended with rabbit ears, space and time. My thoughts on either I won't even waste your time with. I left the book on the green table, bent backward on its spine. I'd understand some nights to remember. My heart was, how shall I say? My heart was in a glove. It was the glove itself. It was the love in glove itself. It was the hand on the behind, behind love. For a fraction of a second, I knew I'd cracked the knuckle on the thumb of the hand of the riddle of the universe. Just as the joint cracked, a voice said, you can't guess? That's all I remember. Thank you. Charles Bernstein.
He is gone now, taking his body with him when he goes. When all the time I thought it was the beauty of his mind, I loved. I first met Ted Greenwald in 1975 in and around the Poetry Project. He was my guide to much of what interested me among the local poets. He never hesitated to say what he liked and didn't in the poems and people around us. It not it's not just that he didn't suffer fools easily, but he was hilarious in skewing pretenses and false premises. We always had a good time talking with my indirectness dancing with his blunt wisdom like two people doing the cha-cha on the point of a fountain pen. We started to meet for very long lunches in the early years at the Queensboro Bar and Grill near the bridge with its hot trays of corned beef and potatoes, eating pickles and drinking whiskey. We talked so much that we decided to tape 17 hours of conversation throughout 1977, sometimes hanging out at Ted and Joan Simon's place on Bleecker. I'd like to share those tapes, but the conversation is still too salty for public consumption. Ted always said we lived like rich people because we had our time to ourselves. He was working delivering the Village Voice once a week, and I was on and off unemployment. For Ted, free time, making time free, time to write and think and talk, that was everything. And that never changed. In our conversations, Ted would often speak of his college friend, Lorenzo Thomas, and his most immediate fellow traveler, Tom Rayworth. Ted's poetry has a down-to-earth feel of the spoken woven into dazzling patterns. While some of the poems seem off the cuff, his later work is as intricate in its phrasal repetitions as a Persian carpet. Ted Greenwald's poems often have a no-nonsense shoot-from-the-hip, hard-boiled style, as if he is speaking with you on the most intimate terms. But this substrate is overlaid with a crystalline, multicolored lacquer. His Jewish accented vernacular speech is sounded out as musical tones, rough edges made exquisite in the alchemy of his poetry which spins base materials into precariously shimmering fabrics. Greenwald's poems are airy and contemplative, ambient and rhythmically intoxicating. There are no intimations, imitations of depth here. Words skim pages like stones 
skipping on the water's surface. Ted was so very happy for his two new Wesleyan books, the reprint of the masterpiece Selected Common Sense and the collection of uncollected poems, Age of Reasons. During the period of his illness, well, Maggie speaks of that so beautifully, Ted was stoic. He'd tell me what was happening with his killer progressive disease, but never dwelled on it, never complained. He was always making time to write. This is what he loved to do and what he did, and this is what he loved to do, and when he did it, he felt like he had entered paradise. In July of 2015, we started on a collaboration which continued until June 11th, just six days before he died. Ted and I exchanged lines back and forth over email, sometimes multiple times a day, and never less than every few days. After a while, neither of us could fully separate what each had done. We were blowing together back and forth in a duet of and as time, bouncing off the moment as if it were a trampoline, tripling out into the eternity of the company from dark to delight. There was no sense of unnecessary limit, no register we couldn't play. The experience was of freedom within the constraints we made up intuitively for each poem. The course is about 500 pages and is dedicated to Tom and Val Rayworth. The one thing Ted ruled out was anything that would frame the work in terms of his dying, though he was homebound and in the final months in hospice under the supernal care of Joan McCluskey and their daughter, Abby. Once I suggested the title, God's Silence. No way, said Ted. None of that shit. Use no hooks was his motto. The course was not about imminent death. It was a way of making the words we exchanged leap to life. Ted Greenwald sung the commons and danced with a homely grace American poetry has rarely seen. It's my pleasure now to welcome Miles Champion. I want to say something about Miles because Miles was a crucial person for Ted in the last decade of his life and worked to make his manuscripts available, prepare them for publication, and was the editor of his two final Wesleyan books. And for Ted, Miles was a lifeline. And for this, I thank Miles enormously. Thanks, Charles. I, um, I you all know this, so I don't have to say it, but uh, uh, I had a less than, uh, I played not even a minor role in the, in the Wesleyan reprint of Common Sense, which I was, it th I was thrilled it happened, uh, but I, and I certainly can't claim to have edited that book, which was edited by Curtis Faville, but Charles is being generous. But uh, I was, uh, 
Ted was thrilled that both those, that, well, I was thrilled that Ted was alive when those books came out, and Ted was thrilled that the books came out, and that's, that's the main thing. Uh, Tom Rayworth asked me to read this on his behalf. He would be here if there was any way he could. He was in hospital last night, and for most of today, he's at home, and I hope asleep right now. And so these are Tom's words. Our dear friend Ted is gone, but books and memories remain. There was correspondence, but it was during my first trip to the USA in 1970 that I met Teddy in person. He was putting out chairs for a reading at the church. Then the memories speed and blur, driving at night through New Hampshire snow, singing American Pie just out. As behind us, David Ball donned and shed his sweater at every one degree change in temperature. Uh, I've met David, he is actually like that. <laughs> Flashes of the magazine he edited with Lorenzo Thomas, the edges of full court press. Standing, talking with Gordon Matterclark outside food, Ted in his gallery on Mott Street, looking at an Ed Baynard canvas of oranges on a blue ground. Standing together in the street at dawn, San Francisco, watching the house we'd slept in being completely destroyed by a bulldozer. Glimpses of England and France, Early in the 70s, the giant dark green garbage trucks on the sidewalk outside the Green Street readings Ted organized. Ted knew exactly where the miracle on 34th Street happened. <laughs> Long evenings at Ennio and Michael's on LaGuardia Place, riding together around Queens so he could point out the best bagels. A sliver of his parents dancing through their apartment, singing every musical they could remember. But above all, Ted was a writer of Manhattan. For almost 50 years, I couldn't be anywhere in the East without visiting him. A serious but not solemn writer, he wrote every day, regular work like driving a cab or delivering newspapers. Clearest of all is an image from the time we lived together on Bleecker Street in 1972. Teddy regularly writing each morning at the same time on yellow legal pads with red ink. Sunlight through the window, a metropolitan Rory Calhoun. We last communicated hospital to hospital. These words go from another one, sadly to no recipient. Our thoughts are with Joan and Abby, love from Val and Tom. And uh, I, w I won't add much to that. I was just uh, on the way over here for no particular reason, thinking about the various permutations that pertain to, so socially at least, to what we do. Uh, and at one end of the scale, I, there's the poet whose work you've loved for years, and then finally, after years, you get to meet them, and they turn out to be, uh, well, something of a narcissist, I suppose, to put it in polite terms. <laughs> and at the other end of that scale, there's you know, your dear friend who you love and whose work you wish you could read with any interest whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and every, every point, in, all points in between are also uh, station stops, of course. Uh, and for me, uh, Ted was the complete package in as much as uh, he was and is a, a dear friend who I miss every day. And his work is uh, central to any understanding I could possibly hope to have about what poem making is and can, can be. Um, I knew, I, you know, not that one thinks about occasions like this, which are celebrations, uh, but there was only one poem that I would ever read. And then I just realized on the subway coming here that uh, Ted's 1977 book, Native Land, I bought on my first visit to New York in October 94. Uh, Skyline Books, no longer there, West 18th Street, $2, it says in the front. And it was that trip, October 94, when I first met Ted. And uh, this poem, it's the last poem in the book, uh, and it's the most honest, least pretentious, and uh, entirely accurate description of uh, 
art making, whatever the, the medium that I know. Uh, it makes me want to live, uh, and it has done unfailingly uh, since I first read it 22 years ago. Last five minutes. The long and the short of it is I have to keep pushing. I feel myself pushing against the lead-in to beauty and take a hunch through with me into the halls where the everyday seems like eternity. There's no fooling around about something as serious as it is beautiful. There's no match for the feeling that gets there when I get there, and absolutely no sense of duration, and no telling how everything turns out. Love you, Ted. Uh, Alan Davies is up next. Hi. Poets are always willing, willing to welcome applause, uh, because it's so rare, but I hope the applause that has occurred tonight and the applause that will occur the rest of this evening uh, will take it all and offer it up to Ted uh, because that's where it really belongs. And, uh, for some reason that none of us will ever understand, you know, for once he couldn't be here. I graduated from college in the 70s. I lived in Boston for a while and uh, at one point Robert Creeley taught a class called Readings in Modern Poetry and he taught the writing of Tom Clark, Ted Berrigan, Joanne Kiger, and John Wieners. And uh, it was through that that I got to know about Ted's writing. Uh, the only requirement for the class, I think, apart from having to show up occasionally, was that we all had to write a paper in order to get the A that was given to all of us. <laughs> and uh, I wrote a paper about jo a book of Joanne's, Joanne Kiger's. I don't remember which book. Uh, the title of the essay was Poets Move Very Fast, which is a line from one of her poems in that book. And, uh, you know, I was a kid out of college, and I went to this amazing class and met wonderful people. And uh, without knowing anybody or anything, I, I knew about the Poetry Project newsletter. I thought, I'll send it to the newsletter. I didn't know who Ted was or anything. And uh, I sent it, and unaccountably, he wrote back and said, yes, I'm going to print it in, you know, the next issue or whatever like that. And uh, it was the only thing that I had ever had published, the first thing since graduating college. And uh, soon after that, I, we started to correspond more. I wrote a long essay about John Wieners and... Uh, was too long for one issue of the newsletter, and uh, Ted printed it in the course of two, two newsletters and maybe published some other things as well. I'm saying that uh, by way of expressing my gratitude to him for the kind of impact that an older writer can have on a younger writer simply by seeing them and by saying, you know, yes, you know, once or twice. I want to just say something about Ted's writing, which is that Ted's writing uh, was made out of words. And that seems like a very obvious thing to say, everybody's writing is made out of words. But that's not true, really. Uh, a great deal of writing is made out of fast and easy emotion. A great deal of writing is made out of slick nuance and innuendo. A great deal of writing is made out of uh, unprocessed sadness. A great deal of writing, although probably not enough, is made out of grief. A great deal of writing is made out of nothing but uh, amalgamation of sort of vaguely surreal images. There's so much poetry like that that it's like clogging up the airstream. And uh, Ted's poetry was always made out of words and it was always completely obvious that it was made out of words. And whatever else his poetry was doing, at the same time it was being made out of words. And that sets him apart in a very unique way from many of his peers, from many of those of us who came after him and from uh, sadly, many people who go on writing. And uh, that fact needs to never be forgotten 
because it's that fact that will keep po keep Ted's poems, you know, on the page, in the air, off the page, and wherever it can get to, as long as there are people who know how to read and who know how to listen. So I, I miss Ted so much. Ryan Eckes. Hi, everybody. Um, about 10 years ago, I was in a bar in Philadelphia, where I live, uh, with a couple of friends, uh, C.A. Conrad and Joey Uris Augustin, and they told me, you should really read Ted Greenwald and they told me this more than once. Uh, and eventually, eventually I did. Uh, and I started with Common Sense, and I fell in love with it, and I became sort of obsessed with it, such to the point that uh, my friends would tease me because I walked around with this for at least a year or so everywhere. Uh, everywhere I went, um, I just took it, took it with me everywhere. Um, and I ended up writing a book of poems that uh, riffed off of um, Ted's poems uh, uh, in Common Sense, and uh, I called it Common Sense. Highly original. Um, yeah, Ted's poetry changed, uh, it changed my ear. It changed the way I write. Um, it changed the way I listened to people talk. Uh, it made me think about what common can mean when we're talking about language. Uh, it made me think about expressions like anyway and you know, uh, and the poetic possibilities of uh, common but sort of invisible, invisible language. So I wrote to Ted um, to invite him to read at Chapter House in Philly and to try to explain um, the effect that his poetry had on me. Um, and he didn't, he didn't do email. Uh, so gratefully, you know, I, uh, Kyle Schlesinger uh, gave me his, his address. So I wrote to him, and he uh, wrote back. He wrote me on these little yellow note, note papers. Um, so I'm just going to read a, a one sentence. Uh, that responded to this like whole page I think I wrote about um, how much I love common sense. Pleased you seem to be enjoying common sense. Long time ago and far, far away, but still works fine. Um, which is just so great that you could just say that about your work that you wrote 30, 40 years ago. Like, yep, still doing his job. Um, so we went back and forth, um, traded books, um, and so anyway, I'm going to read a quick poem of, uh, uh, of Ted's and then, uh, a poem I wrote, uh, at that time that was inspired by, uh, Common Sense. Food Cycle. Clean glass, dark park, and buildings. Part night, lights clear, and then I look in to find my weariness. I wear my work and its dust over my body. 
passing into a wonderful darkness. On the other side, morning wakes. It is not late, it is just right. I wash and shave, smoke a cigarette, have some coffee. My body wakes up, that was a long time ago. My body wakes up, tired, frazzled, snow, snow turning to rain. And this is the thing I wrote. Uh, it's called Edgewise. So when I'm Buddhist, finally, and gin pints at Frank's become trains into trees in a distance, liberty then water through bench slats, all the presidents, wet dogs at gunpoint, in the open-faced park we once lived in to tell people about. Hey, I was a kid once, and now last so in your thought clouds as stamped pieces of comic strip dialogue that'll drift around for a borrow and yellow. All you can get is the drift. A pigeon this morning flew into my place, panicked and calmed into an owl and perched. So I opened the window, my mouth, and it flew out a ghost, and I miss it, I miss it. I miss it. Next up is uh, Ed Friedman. Uh, lots of things to say about Ted. I just <clears throat> would say that in relation to this place, um, being director of the place and, and having Ted as someone who I could uh, you know, check my thinking with, well, he was a major resource. I mean, there's no, there was no degree program to train for, for being director of the Poetry Project. And um, it really made, it made a big difference to have someone who had been through enough things to say, don't do that. <laughs> you know? Or that would be good. Or this person over here, they know what they're doing. You know? And uh, I counted on him a lot for that. <clears throat> I thought I'd read a couple of poems from In Your Dreams. Um, I remember, uh, you know, when Ted was working on these poems, I think it was 90s, um, and, you know, he was very excited about the form. Um, <clears throat> this is one called The Movie. Cut to person meets person. Cut to cut to. Cut to person desires. Cut to person meets person person desires, cut to something, person desires something, cut to person desires, cut to, cut to, enchanted auto moment, cut to, cut to, cut to, blue, very blue, cut to enchanted auto moment, blue, very blue, cut to clothes on the floor, blue, very blue, cut on, cut clothes on floor, cut to blue, very blue, cut to, cut to, see you two hands, cut to, cut to, cut to, lip edge, Cut to see you two hands, lip edge. Cut to human mood ring music, lip edge. Human mood ring music. Cut to lip edge. Cut to, cut to who hesitates. Cut to, cut to, cut to light phone rings. Cut to who hesitates. Light phone rings. Cut to the way things are. Light phone rings. The way things are. Cut to light phone rings. Cut to, cut to interior house food. Cut to, cut to, cut to interactive sleep, cut to interior, house food. 
And then uh, this one, which is the last uh, poem of this, of this collection. Last room. Head somewhere, know it's over. What's it? Head somewhere, what's it? Wiring too off, head somewhere, know it's over. Wiring too off, threshold to try to remember. Wiring too off, try to remember, looks at watch. Wiring too off, threshold to looks at watch. On whose company time? How much does looks at watch? How much does anyone know about anyone? Looks at watch. Or whose company time? Anyone know about anyone? Was done, was done. Ear to ground, anyone know about anyone? Ear to ground, fat lady notes, anyone know about anyone? Was done, was done. Fat lady notes bang against real canyons. Soundtrack the humdrum. Far lady notes, fat lady notes, soundtrack the humdrum. Asleep at wheel, fat lady notes bang against real canyons. Asleep at wheel. True crime sits, talk to a yellow pad, asleep at wheel, talk to a yellow pad, alert, responsive to visitors, asleep at wheel, true crime sits, alert, responsive to visitors, on the road, blood, blood dog barks, alert, responsive to visitors, blood dog barks, up the wrong tree, alert, responsive to visitors, on the road, up the wrong tree, described in quiet streets, I you buy, up the wrong tree, I you buy, finally look up, up the wrong tree, described in quiet streets, finally look up, then what, rings a bell, finally look up, rings a bell, receipts for everything, finally look up, then what, Next is John Godfrey. You know, I'm, I'm really, really happy that Ted lived to see the Wesleyan books come out. They are very accessible poems, and they are actually going to be, there's going to be an audience for Ted through those books. But my, my feelings are really with his more radical kind of work that he did for about 30 years where he makes it a little more difficult. The earlier work, he had a kind of transparency, but with a hitch. He's a little like, here's the open face guy, comes up, puts out his hand, you shake it, and you feel a very gentle handshake buzzer. <laughs> you know? And in the later work, it's almost like he, displaces common sense with subliminal sense, and it makes a terrific effect. We've spoken of the vernacular and the way he uses it. The vernacular is, it's almost like cliches. They are units of speech that are so common to us that we don't really have to process a lot when we hear them. And Ted got on to how if you truncate one of these units, or maybe just remove a conjugation or an article and all of a sudden you say holy shit you know and it really stops you up oh oh and I love that a lot uh, and the, I'm in love with New York which I was exposed to at the age of eight and didn't get here full-time until just about when I got to know Ted which was 69 70 I have a quick story <laughs> The first time we did this was in the winter of 69, 70. We went to McSorley's for four hours. 
we exchanged life stories and outlook on writing and everything else. And Ted was the native New Yorker. He got his word in first, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and then another bar story, about 15 years ago, I was working, I had no free time. It's Saturday night, I finally left my desk at home. I go over to the St. Mark's bookstore. It's 7.30 on Saturday. I meet Ted there. Hey, blah, 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 blah. let's go have a beer. <laughs> we walk outside. The only place around was the Continental Divide. By now, it's 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. The place is empty now, right? We look through the door, and there's a 25-year-old or so, young woman behind the bar. She's got the blonde tear up, and black sides, uh, piercings, black t-shirt with some obscenity in white. And we walk up to the bar and sit down, and she says, see your ID? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you know, we laughed our asses off. She didn't get it, and she didn't get it at all. Uh, uh, I, I will confess, to, three years ago, I was so affected by this book that I actually wrote prose. And I tried to write what I was thinking, and it, was, it really drove me crazy. And I got, I got 2,500 words into this, and I said, I'm only halfway there, man. Uh, and I discussed my ideas about his use of the vernacular and, and whatnot. But I got to polish that up, because uh, I read it recently, and it wasn't that bad if I just, I, I was never a graduate student. How did this happen? You know, I'm writing like a freaking graduate student. You know. I'm going to read, because I, I always mentioned to him, I'd say, you know, Ted, th th there's a pattern going on here, the left side of the book and the right side of the book. And I said, Ted, you know what it makes me think of? It's like a 1969 Terry Riley. And you got the left hand over here going, because there are repetitions and certain patterns. And then the right hand is going, and he said, nah, I was never into the, oh, yeah, nah, nah, that ain't it, that ain't it. <laughs> I'm not going to try to read as fast. Uh, many of us remember Ted reading those poems. Uh, he was slower on your, you know, your recording, man. He was a lot slower. I mean, 40 years ago, I'm going in, and the only one who could ever, Miles Champion has read that fast before. And it was really astonishing because he's like being really out front at the same time. It's almost as if he's defying you to be able to understand the way he's reading, you know, it's so fast. Let me get this over with. I'm going to read the left hand followed by the right hand, and I'm going to follow it with a sort of, uh, it'll, it'll be on this occasion a sort of sentimental poem. This is from uh, Comma Fork. There are two units to this book. And... Uh, Blazevox and Kyle Schlesinger had made so many beautiful books in the last 15 years using some of this rad material. This is the left hand. One big heart broken, radar switch on. Bring back who's old asphalt, no empty seats, out into the street. Bring back a pier during avenue by far out into the street, no empty seats, radar switch on. Know what I'm saying? Throw in the key, turn out your lights. Lie down, do your time, smile when you say. The verdict comes down, where big dogs meet. The late, great, 
this is the last poem in Moving Parts. As I look back, as I live and breathe, as one among many, as many as you want, as good as gone, as the bridges sing, as seen on TV, as another way of life, as I look forward to. That uh, can't be overstated. I mean, he was, uh, he, he was not a theoretician. He was very intuitive, and that's what makes a genius, you know? It was not a pattern that he was gonna fill out. It just is the way he trained his mind. He, it's kind of distortion. And it, I, I think many of us have maybe experienced how dangerous that can be when you actually get your mind to work the way you want a poem to work, and you say, uh-oh, this is a problem. <laughs> but <laughs> that was really great. And the, when, he, when he was in bad shape, he'd always say, it is what it is. You know, and we got to say that now too. It is what it is. Uh, Erica Hunt. Thank you and good evening. So, um, a memory of Ted Greenwald. Um, I think I met him uh, maybe 38 years ago. Yeah, in uh, California when uh, Barrett Watton published uh, You Bet. And uh, he came out to work on it and read. But also uh, a very strong memory of Ted Greenwald and Lorenzo Thomas um, as friends and as really good friends and buddies uh, modeling poetry and poets to me. Um, baby poet, I, I will say. Take the liberty of saying I was a baby poet. and. You know, the, the great clouds of cigarette smoke rising around them as they, they drank and smoked and talked poetry and finished each other's thoughts almost sometimes and sometimes had uh, opinions and disagreements and so forth. Um, I think about You Bet and how that, it, the impact of that on me of thinking about a poem as if it were a Moebius strip, um, that there was a way that you could you know, Moebius strip, you, you kind of can loop it, even though you've changed planes. And, uh, and Ted's writing struck me that way, that, that there was a kind of seamlessness, hard to know where to begin or end. And um, it was his manner of conversation, at least with me, where to begin or end. Um, it kind of would always be in medias ray. Um, and then he'd hold that opinion. <laughs> And you'd have to hold hold that opinion with him, and uh, <laughs> or else. And um, he would uh, rock the Maven, as I call it. You know, he was the Maven. He was the expert on that. But I also found him uh, to be enormously generous and um, kind, um, and uh, you know, a model for us all. As he said, "Well, I write every day." He said, no, I did six pages today, that wasn't bad. And I go, oh, <laughs> how, to, how to even you know, keep up with that? I'm gonna read from you, Bet. Deform along the line, you wanna describe in so many words your mind. Isn't it exciting? Contain a subspace link with facing it, complete with brick red, found only true north. Dreamers had hoped 
They dream what everybody, they see and hear each moment, what you see and hear to, to in the sense of direction. You are headed right and take you right smack dab to the left of tomorrow's cab. This is all so sudden, this complete lack of factors, solacing theorems, more time, worse anyway. Clearly determined positive. That is how well you see. Laws of posture put in, body coordinate results, have, must, ought, check. What mood puts you in mood to be me? What shorthand, slobbed, length, angle, similarly? Assume for a minute you're not living or in your living room. In fact, don't know where you are. What fascination is left? This is interesting to put you right in the middle of compass pedal, final state, way of denying, the unexpected others, the other, the very how true existence of word, the the, the word has these multiple pronunciations, bib up, put down, put across, well, isn't that nice? Well, that's not the leftover, nice, my mind put over via smoke within view of me, on me is the ability to discover system, where before as in door, who's there? Nothing existed before. So try hard, write down what immediately turns your mind toward me in a particular direction, not the general. Oh no, that would be too much. I implore you to ask, how do, do? bending over a hot circumference measured by foot from where stood the own two feet. So afraid, operation that represents a representation of rules, puts mind waited for so long over matter which took place, ransacking elegant city built larger than life through a simplicity itself at large in life, surrounded by hills, do exactly as you wish, since between the buildings, the day is at leisure. Remembering, Ted. Ashe. Michael Lally. Yeah, it's an, I just want to say, first of all, thank you to Joan and, and for including me in, and that it's an honor to be among uh, such uh, a group of people. Um, uh, Ted, Ted and I met, um, uh, I had lived in the New York briefly in the early 60s and then in Brooklyn in 66, and we met um, in the early 70s. I was still living in D.C., but I had this little chapbook come out of 20 sonnets called the South Orange Sonnets, and when I first met Ted, he said, uh, you know, we, before we even started telling our life story and getting to know each other, he said, you know that book? And I said, yeah, he said, uh, everybody else is writing albums, um, meaning LPs. You might have even used the word LPs, you know, 33 and a third. He said, everybody else is writing albums. You're writing 45s. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was so fucking happy, you know. <laughs> and uh, everybody's talking about drinking. Uh, some of my fondest memories of of Ted, when I, when I was living in the city in the 70s, I had a little boy, my, my oldest boy, I was raising on my own, I'm raising another now. Uh, um, before his sister came to join us, it was just the two of us, and 
Ted would just incorporate him in to our, uh, our time together just beautifully, you know? And one of, the, one of my fondest memories, other than all the talk we did about writing and books and so on, which other people are having, are so much more articulate about his writing than I can be. Um, we would, I had stopped drinking years before, and, uh, but I like to get high, and Ted and I would watch NFL football games, you know, get really stoned and watch NFL football games. And be like, the fields were so green, it was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I can't remember his, I can't remember his name, his name Lynn something. Lynn Swan. We'd talk about, oh man, he's like a ballet dancer when he's catching. A you know. um, couple other things I remember, a couple other things I remember about him was that of him saying um, um, uh, that, you, you know, the important thing to know about a person was which section of the New York Sunday Times they read first. <laughs> he would write, what, the, what section of the New York Times does she read first? That's what counts. You know, that's how I was going to tell, which maybe I should have paid attention to, but. Um, uh, also, uh, you know, I was trying to raise this kid, and then I got another kid. I only had a job for about a year and a half in an office, and all the rest of the time I've made my living by my wits. And I had, I, I had this idea, I couldn't make, you know, I was, make, I was doing a lot of ghost writing and shit like that, and technical writing and so on. And, um, it looked like I might have an opportunity to do some acting. So I told Ted about it. I said, I think I'm going to try and act in movies on a TV, you know? And he said, um, okay, well, here's the deal with that, you know? <laughs> and I, I can't remember what it was, but it had something, it had something to do with the way I was supposed to walk in time, you know? It, not in time like in a rhythm, but in the sense of the great, you know, time. But he, you know, one of the things we shared and he appreciated was, uh, you know, was our work, work ethic. I'm a graphomaniac. I, I write every day. I write a lot every day and, uh, and, and have since I was like five years old. And uh, I, I totally got, I, I, I had the habit of putting myself down. Not, not in public. You know, anybody else would be like, fuck you, I'm really great, you know. But inside, I was like, ah, shit, I'm just this kid from Jersey whose father's an eighth grade dropout. You know what I mean? And Ted... You always give me a great sense of, you know, we got, an, we got a work ethic. That's what we got that those guys don't have, and I appreciate it. So here was his uh, a poem from this surprisingly popular book tonight, Native Land, um, that I thought of and posted on a blog I had when, when Ted passed. It's the first poem that came to my mind for some reason. It's called Airy Rush's Punch. Airy rushes punch my shirt through a window of sunset dirt and send me reeling like a lure through the water nerves of America. Once on the other side of somewhere, I relax and become someone else. Not that I behave different, just behave less often. <laughs> the sky offers me solace and office space and stars I keep in drawers wear nothing but a little mist and halo. I will imagine myself a sympathetic headlight knocking on the door of the night to borrow a cup of sugar 
from the beautiful neighbor who's moved in without even the clothes on her back. <laughs> Would it be possible to borrow a cup of sugar? <laughs> sure, sit down, make yourself comfortable. <laughs> I ease down in the Big Dipper. Ron Padgett. As Michael was speaking, I realized that I was stunned by how well everyone has understood Ted. I mean, everyone who's spoken tonight has been bang on, at least in my experience. It's wonderful, because I thought I was the only guy who understood him. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. Um, the other thing I noticed was uh, there are a number of people in the audience tonight wearing plaid shirts. And is that intentional? I wore mine because in homage to Ted, because Ted, Ted wore plaid shirts. And he was the first guy I knew outside of Tulsa who wore a plaid shirt, you know? <laughs> it was weird. I, I met Teddy, um, I, I think it was in 1964, just down the street at the La Metro, well, then called the La Metro, it was a coffee bar and a place where a lot of poetry readings took place and there was kind of an underground type scene there. And um, it was 64, so almost everybody who came in was pretty shaggy. Uh, had beards, long hair, or mustaches, or were dressed semi-shabby chic. And uh, Ted stood out because he was wearing dress slacks and a nice shirt. And he had a conventional haircut. And I thought, what the, who the fuck is this? I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> What's he doing in here? And, and then I soon learned that, uh, that Ted was utterly himself. He was utterly himself. And he wasn't going to dress funny for anybody. He wasn't going to please anybody. He was going to be himself from start to finish. And he was always that way. And that really was something that in, in made me love him. And uh, I also liked... In a, you know, long, everybody said this before, but um, Teddy was totally straightforward. He was very, even blunt sometimes. And he would come out, as you, some people have said, with opinions and things you'd go, huh? I mean, really? <laughs> and we would talk about them. And uh, I would say things back to him. And then it seemed to make no difference. I mean, <laughs> really. <laughs> so we had these absolutely great uh, conversations that way. And... Uh, so we, we, disagree, we, we disagreed about a lot of things topically, but we never once argued. I never had a sour moment with Ted. I never had a negative moment with Ted. I never had a moment I regretted with him ever. And um, I don't know why. I, I, I guess it's because we had, we had mutual respect. I mean, I, I, I know we did. I know we did. What am I saying? I think we did. I know we did. And it, it enabled us to say anything to each other and not be offended or upset or think the other guy was full of it. And uh, uh, one way you get to know a guy really well is to play poker with him. And Ted, Ted and I were uh, part of the Friday night poker game at George Naiman's apartment here for, I can't remember how many years, 12, 14 straight years every Friday night. Started about 9 o'clock at night and played till about 5 or 6 in the morning. And you spend that much time butting heads with a guy, uh, you really get to know what he's made of and what he's like, how well he takes... Uh, uh, victory and defeat and the ups and downs and it was really fun playing cards with Ted because uh, not only was he uh, had a great 
spirit about it, but uh, he had a great manner. You know, I think Teddy always wanted to be in the mafia. Uh, <laughs> you know, in some weird way. Like he loved the way mafiosos behaved, you know, and publicly. And uh, so he always had a kind of a tough guy way of playing poker, which was really hilarious. And uh, uh, now I said he was utterly himself. Uh, he was that way, of course, in his poetry as well. And uh, you know, in his later years, uh, he, it was amazing how he combined, uh, I'm gonna be professorial for a moment, he combined a kind of formal rigor with, with, this, um, with this colloquial speech and, and colloquial thinking uh, that, w that was really original, I thought. Uh, it was almost like he was, I don't know, a combination of, say, Domenico Scarlatti and Gertrude Stein and Damon Runyon all put together. <laughs> and uh, I, I, nobody else really wrote like that. And it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a form of modern song. And uh, it, it put Ted in a, in really in a class by himself. He, he was not New York school. He was not language. He was somewhere bouncing off or in between or above all those. And he maintained that special niche for himself his whole life. Um, something that was really... It's rare, and uh, the other thing I, that I noticed in that later work was the, the quickness of perception uh, and how the, the poems actually reenacted or embodied the, the every momentness of life and how quick they were and how sharp and perceptive and alert. And that was partly, but not wholly, but partly the result of his his, um, well, his mind, but his intellect as well. As someone said, Teddy knew a lot about a lot of things. Uh, I, was, I was never interested in sociology or economics or anything like that. And, uh, but I got to be because of Ted. He knew amazing amounts about uh, all those subjects. He'd read an unbelievable numbers of books. It was unbelievable. And not just because his father was a professor of economics either. Uh, but um, for instance, one day I was talking to him about the Second World War, and how my father, oh my God, this guy knew so much. And we got down to the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> He'd read about 50 books. He, he gave me a list. This I said, I was curious about the ba Battle of Stalingrad. He, he got a napkin out and he started writing. I had to go home with this huge syllabus. <laughs> and not only that, he, he annotated each one and how it would be a valuable and which order to read them in. And I, I confess I didn't read them all, but but he was right, and uh, it, was, it was amazing. Um, l later, was, he got to the Battle of the Bulge, and there I, <laughs> I, I, I was so dazzled I couldn't stand it. Um, but so someone said that Ted was, was serious but not solemn. Uh, he was serious. He was a really, really deeply serious person with a really, really great sense of humor. And um, um, I mentioned earlier that he... He, he kind of liked to wanted to be a mafioso. You know, he liked to hang out at any on Michael's restaurant on, on LaGuardia Place because it was a reputed uh, mafia hangout. And um, uh, Teddy hung out there a lot so much he got to know the bartender and then and then. And he ended up playing in the after hours poker game in the kitchen with a lot of genuine tough guys. And uh, oh, Ted was in heaven. He was in <laughs> heaven with these people. <laughs> he would come back and tell me stories like, oh my God. And, so, uh, so we had lunch there some, and uh, later when he was more restricted in his movements, he hung out at, at Starbucks on First Avenue, about 17th Street, I guess. And I would walk by there often in the morning, and Teddy was always at his booth in the window, 
reading, and I would pop in, and we'd, I'd sit down, we'd bullshit for 15, 20 minutes, and it was really such a great pleasure. And then later, when he was even more restricted, he was, he was pretty much hung out at Mumbles, a bar on the corner of 18th Street and I think 18th and 3rd Avenue. And uh, we had many, many lunches there. And uh, one more thing about the tough guy thing. Years ago, I can't remember, but he, uh, people, someone said, he, uh, Ross McDonald, he was turning, or someone who was great about turning you on to detective writers. And he, he told me once, he said, you, uh, I've discovered this great new writer, uh, it's a guy named Elmore Leonard. And I said, oh, who's he? And he says he's, he's published some cowboy novels that are so-so, but, he, but he's, he's written two terrific little crime novels. You've got to read one called Ryan's Rules. And uh, so, you know, I got the book, and I read it. It was a knockout book, a knockout. And he said, okay, now you've got to read The Unknown Man, number 89, another <laughs> knockout. And that was about all that Leonard had published in the crime scene up to that point. I think City Primeval was about to come out. But so <laughs> one day... I was telling Ted, boy, I'm so glad you turned me on to him. He said, you want to meet him? I said, what? I said, you know Elmore Leonard? He said, no. <laughs> but I know a guy who knows him <laughs> out in Detroit, you know? And the next thing I knew, Elmore Leonard was at Ted Greenwald's place with Joni, and me and my wife came over, and we had dinner with fucking Elmore Leonard. <laughs> like, whoa! <laughs> I mean, it was, it was like, hello. And uh, so uh, two more things. I've gone on too long. And, I'm not, and I don't regret going on too long either because, because I love Teddy. I love Teddy. Um, two things. One is about a, a couple of years before he became so housebound, uh, we'd had lunch at, anyone, uh, not anyone, at uh, Mumbles. And uh, we'd had a really wonderful, long, I mean like a two or three hour lunch there. And we talked about a lot of really serious things and uh, in a lot of serious ways. And... Uh, we realized we were really very similar in a lot of ways. Although he was a Jewish kid from New York and I was came out of this waspy ethos in Oklahoma. And we were born in the same year. But we, we really had a lot in common. And uh, we got outside and said goodbye. And, and we hugged and Ted kissed me on the neck. Which is sort of a mafia kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> and, you know, but I was, I was, I was utterly... I was I was moved in a way. It was so moving to feel that this person and I were brothers. We were actual brothers, and uh, that, that's that's the kind of that's the kind of abandon you give yourself to a brother that you love. And the final thing is is that one day we we were talking about something, and I said I said something. Like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I remember I loaned a guy twenty dollars in 1967, and son of a bitch never repaid me. You know, and I was still pissed off about it. And, and Ted said, Ron, you got a Jewish memory. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, then he said, he said, come to think of it, I'm making you an honorary Jew. <laughs> so, um, Teddy, I loved you. The next speaker is Arlo Quint. I love Ted, and I, I, I love being here and hearing everybody talk about him. It, it's really great. Thanks for the Poetry Project for doing this, and thanks to Joan and Abby. Um, uh, Native Land, I see it here. That was the first book of Ted's I bought, actually. And uh, 
I started reading Ted's work about 10 years ago and uh, started working at the Poetry Project. In the first month I worked, I was working in the office here, um, I, I, I kind of had like a, I was like, felt like I was being like a poetry beat reporter. I was going out to interview Ted for the newsletter. Um, and I was really excited. I was super into his work. I wanted to be well prepared for the interview. I read everything. The things I couldn't find, I, I went to Miles and got copies of, you know, Lapstrake. And, uh, and I, I got really excited for this interview with him, which was on my 30th birthday. And uh, I, I hung out, I, I, I met him at Pangea across the street, um, probably around noon or something. And I, uh, I spent all morning, like, chain smoking, and I took some Adderall, and I was really, like, <laughs> reading everything of his all at once, because I, I wanted to, like, have it all in my mind and be able to, like, somehow know everything about his work when I, when I met him. And, and he's, like, you know, I'm 30, and he's, I, he's probably, I guess he was, like, 65 at the time. And I was all sped up and, you know... And then I meet Ted, and, like, he talked for, like, three hours straight. I mean, he's, like, talked, like, faster than, you know. I, like, and he, he knew everything. Like, like you know, uh, he was ready to talk about anything he'd ever written, which is what I sort of came into the interview hoping for. But also, you know, in the hours that went by, like, you know, Ross Thomas came up and, like, Elmore Leonard and... and uh, you know, Milman Perry, scholar of uh, epic poetry, just, you know, everything. And um, and then in the years that followed, I, I kept hanging out with Ted, usually at Mumbles. Um, I'd often come home with literally, like, grocery bags filled with mystery novels and, like, annotated like lists of Ross Thomas stuff and Elmore Leonard and I read I read like every Ian Rankin novel somehow because you know because of Ted and uh yeah the the conversations were just amazing he was one of my favorite people to talk to I'll I'll, I'll miss him greatly um and let me just read one one poem of Ted's then I'll Give it to Kit Robinson next. Uh, this is in Common Sense. It's called The Words to the Song. The words to the song were about love, and love is about life. Life, life is about art, while art is about everything. The American word for everything is art. So when we talk about everything, we're really talking about art. Did you bring everything? Everything was ready. Love doesn't mean everything. Everything is about to draw to a close. But first, a song about love, life, and art. Kit Robinson. Thanks to Joan and Abby. Hi, Abby. I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, I'm, not, I'm just going to talk briefly and read a few things that Ted and I wrote together. Uh, Ted was a wonderful friend to me, and I miss him very much. 
We met in San Francisco in the late 70s, and after that, I saw him every time I came to New York. He was always available for a good conversation about this, that, and the other thing, as he liked to say. Eventually, we started collaborating, and our collaborations continued intensely from around 2004 to just last year. Ted said we created a third person who wrote these works. And I'm going to read three samples. This first one, I think, is the first collaboration we did. It was written, I found it, I, 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 uh, and uh, it was written in December of 1983. And it, it's called Your Gentle Body. Lines crisscross south of the bit but this is a waltz. The ankle directs my attention. This too is altitude. Then over in the second, something or other, this is must lateness. I'm intentionally delay within several momentum's carbons. The covers parts lumens, swing against the laughter, the jewels, carry smoke away from the table, but frittering away each opportunity, the travel of which you're surely aware. Thinking this is tardiness, I tune in this station. The people are many who are winterized. The fourth sound entering their throats began with froths and a great stamping boot finishing each dance. Then each dancer turned to their corner where the answer to the mystery to the mystery became something, how you say it, with the returning boom of the hoosus. And in anterior rooms, this burns with houses and houses great birds in an open wing, flaunted with geraniums. The time is now and then. Uh, this one uh, was part of a series that we did when we started up uh, doing bigger uh, works, I think in about 2004, maybe 2005, and it became the first piece in this book, uh, A Mammal of Style. And uh, it's just this, it, it, it turned, it was a big mass of writing that we then manipulated and uh, worked over very thoroughly. We, we uh, combined our lines by shuffling them with one pack upside down and then uh, edited each other's lines until they were unrecognizable as, uh, as to their uh, author. And, uh, and then we cut them into 14 sonnets. And this one is called Lath Talk. Charges were dropped, just doesn't add up. Rock and roll warehouse, it's opening. It's windows, you must be nuts, it's curtains, skin flint armchair, bone dry riverbed, seed the air, similar to being another planet. Whatever your howdy into paraphernalia, the heart goes wump, intercept, no deeds, facts, too many, need less, the space between you and me, 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 freezing your legs, so, 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 ongoing semi-overwhelming susceptibles, kissing your ass. Um, and uh, this last one is the last poem in a chapbook uh, called Takeaway that was published uh, 
by James Yeary in, in Portland. James is actually one of a number of younger poets that Ted introduced me to um, and who became very important as friends and, and uh, colleagues for me, including Miles Champion and Kyle Schlesinger and, and this guy James Yeary in Portland. Uh, it's called Idiom Attic. Fort Out Thou, Stan Lee, Chi, Feng Shei Stadium. Have something later, get hang of. Cats of Fei Ro, that's it. Pyramid, flu like Simpkins. <laughs> ah, Mom, spin moves. Clouds dispense wisdom. Stars fly apart. Series of a gone. Moving day, simple syrup. Springs roundabout picks. The kind, the kind, picture nothing to do. Confusion says, oh say, be cool. Weather all said, said and done town, where at is it, and it is this. Get my snow drift, bet the farm team, a voidish figure. Let's face it, sound view avenue, old man tie shoe, left, right. And next up is Kyle Schlesinger. Thanks. It's been very nice hearing you all. Um, last time I was in town, I um, went to see Ted, and I was going down the subway steps. I got about halfway down, and I was like, whoa. I felt the jello knees coming on. And I was nervous. I was really nervous. but. Um, we had a uh, springtime, and we had a really upbeat conversation, and then um, went to read with Bill Berkson that afternoon. That was the last time I saw both those guys. Um, but right as I was leaving, Ted said, hey, you want to make something? And I said, yeah, let's do something, because we're always making things. And um, he said, well, I'll think about it. And I called him a few days after I got back home, and I said, how about this? How about if we do... 333 three-liner postcards back and forth to each other with a picture on one side. I said, great. You make the postcards and send them me with stamps on them? I said, you bet. <laughs> so this is what we wrote. Beam me a zinger. Beautiful beauty parlor. Best backup singers. Bud leaf shadows, red brick with pom-pom. Window blotters. Sunset strip, clams, rubber nose, loosey-goosey placebos. Any simple animals walk by, they're people, the very people. Halcyon days, scratched surface, so surmised as a sentence, angels, brain cells. Beyond soundbite valley, tundraing hoofs, rush hour whistling snowflakes, wranglers, vortex, limestone, landslide, parade dog, better run for it. No, not either, nothing. Where wildflowers stand taller than me, if I can't feel you, I have nothing to say to you. No money, no money, no money. There's nothing more beautiful than two beautiful people making something beautiful together. Four seasons day, folder lies empty, talking paints. Beach ball, tumbleweed across the city sleep, citizens, denizens. 
kind of looks between Ngon's swatches, watch mop. Tingle in the right arm, chalk dust mouth. Think I'll pack it in and buy a pickup. Across USA, cross out weather, so waitressing about this. Wide awake and breathing hard, green that is green that is green, like there's no tomorrow resemble. Singer, a diff tune, thought so. Comes a time, birds of paradise comes a time. Calling all clouds, country of origin, end user certificate. Pack it away, no ifs, ands, or but about it in the tall grass tomorrow. Fifth and out, anything on road, let's go faces. Everyday losers, camel careening towards snatch, batten down the hatch. Weather inventory today, do clouds, today's done clouds. Everything was groovy on the magic sleigh ride, then something happened. Happens yester, the at first, hot, later, later. One step, and another, and another. Ah, it could work. Time being, hover light, water over water. Nose in mind, knife handwriting, little kick. My favorite picture of you, watching the birds, a potato in the sky, drive off in my hair, at foot of seal legs, feel like family. Light change, the feeling that happens in so many words. Little bird, where is your little song? Camera clicks, light both ends, clouds, cattle, land. Sit around talking, snowflake blossoms, dicey. We, the people, it's personal, another human. Bird jumping and flapping, be my beloved. Misery scatters about beauty, taking fire. Air across face as I, they close, and an grammar. Heavy air, more barn, stroke of genius. How this ends, the best restrooms, none of us. And uh, yeah, we did, wanted to do 333, three liners and 999 lines. And we didn't quite get there. And I had these postcards sitting in my uh, workshop at home. So I thought I'd bring them. And if you guys want to finish the collaboration for us, um, you can just pass them around. Uh, next up is Patricia Spear-Jones. This has been a, um, quite an evening. Uh, I didn't do any collaborations with uh, Ted, and I didn't hang out with them for three hours. <laughs> and I, hmm, no, I didn't do that. But we did, we did work together uh, as board members for this wonderful place. And the reason why I'm here is because of Ted. Somebody said earlier in the evening that he would talk to anybody at any time. Well, he talked to me. And he talked to me when I was in food restaurant, 1974, um, because I was hanging out with my friends from Abu Mines who were working in the restaurant. And we started talking, and he said he was a poet. And I said, well, I was writing poetry in college. I don't know. I think I can still write. I'm not sure. And he said, why don't you go to the Poetry Project? And I said, what is the Poetry Project? And he told me what the Poetry Project was. Next thing I knew, I was in Lewis Warsh's workshop. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Ted. Um, he was incredibly generous. And I echo Erica's comment about his relationship with 
Lorenzo Thomas. Um, they both were from Queens. And, uh, and Queens was really serious. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I know he lived in Manhattan, and I remember going to, uh, actually to dinner with him when he was uh, still with Joan Simon and on Bleecker Street, and I remember going to those full court press uh, book launches, which were really kind of amazing in Midtown, and all this sort of stuff, and he was kind of like, you know, Mafia, I don't know about the Mafia so much as like, I thought of him as like a, the ultimate politician. Like he was like, he knew everybody, he could bring them all together, he had opinions, okay. Um, and, uh, and so you agree with him or you didn't agree with him, but you kind of would vote for him anyway. Um, so, uh, so <laughs> and he was good with money. Um, so, uh, and I, 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 I'm so glad that he lived long enough to see his work get this level of, of uh, love and critique. Because uh, he, he did, he had a work ethic. And that too was something Lorenzo had. I think that they were um, guys who sort of thought, you know, if I'm gonna live in this world, I gotta work in this world. And, and they did. Uh, and I'm gonna read one poem, yet another poem from Common Sense. It's kind of common, but it feels to me like a poem that both he and Lorenzo could have written, because it's about music and about dance and about a guy who will talk to anybody at any time about just about anything, because that's what Ted was like. I'm gonna miss you, goes on. And this is for all the people from the 70s who knows, and the beat goes on. Okay. <laughs> That's why I know he knew about disco, too. <clears throat> the beat comes out the speaker. Bodies start to move, yearning to be next to leaning on some other body. They get up to dance. Couples a common denominator, although a few threes and fours can be seen around the floor. Spines showing through, clothes take on unearthly glow, as if all things unthought of when in the course of events have surfaced. Having a good time between songs, everybody stands around breathing, saying to each other, what fun, is the next one fast or slow? Can I have this dance? Who wants to know? <laughs> All right, Stacy Semesic. <laughs> Stacy. Um, I really, I loved Ted's work so much. Um, like, I had such an uh, intense physical response to it, I, and I really grew uh, over the past 11 years of knowing him to, to love him a lot. Um, he gave me personally a great life gift, which was uh, that when, when he knew he didn't have much longer to live, he called me and he told me that, just like that, um, and invited me to come over and visit him. And I was feeling under the weather at the time and couldn't do it, so we talked, had a, a couple of long conversations on the phone, and then I was f finally able to go visit him. Um, 
And of course, we mainly talked about this place. Um, as many of you know, he was on the board of directors for, I don't even know how long, like <laughs> 20 years or something, um, up until a couple of years ago. And so, uh, like what Ed said, he, you know, he, being the director of the Poetry Project and like kind of like conversations, intense conversations with Ted kind of came along with it. Um, <laughs> um, and he always had an, an idea or a question or a warning, <laughs> which those were my favorite. Um, and uh, like Charles said, maybe some of them were too salty. Like, I, I, I won't say what the warnings were. <laughs> but, uh, you know, many warnings. Um, he would say, um, let's, let's keep this between you, me, and the lamppost. <laughs> um, but one of the last things he said to me when I was visiting with him is he, he said, um, I really enjoy talking about the poetry project with you. And it just struck me as like one of those um, exact right thing, the exact right moment and the, the right music between two people um, because that's 90% of what we ever talked about. Um, so, and, and I always, I don't know, uh, I, I just always had this feeling that like somehow I was here because of him. <laughs> like I felt like he was that fierce of an ally um, and a friend and I'm really, just really grateful to have spent some hours in his company late last spring to say farewell in our own ways. Um, I'm gonna just read a couple of short pieces from this book three. From that fir the first section, um, going into school that day. Body imagines itself different, enters another's dream, is entertainment by desire. Body imagines itself different, is entertainment by desire. What's happening, who cares? Body imagines itself different, enters another's dream. Phone connect, call out. Mind thinks sleep, memory remembers, just one of those. Apartment looks close, designed for modern living, just one of those. Mind thinks sleep. I tell you thoughts, you, yours. We agree for the time, money's on fear. Journey's scientific method, breathes into lungs, smell something near. In here dying, out here weather, out here freezing, in here dying, out here freezing, out here thinking, in here dying, out here weather. Clothes make the man become the woman <laughs> because the house becomes the home, because the clothes become personal, become the personal, where a glimpse becomes the flame, clothes make the desire, because the voice makes up the mind, becomes the man, because the home, becomes the clothes. Chris Tisch.
Good evening. It's really beautiful to be part of this uh, celebration of Teddy's uh, life and work. I'd like to share a little memory from a long time ago when I met uh, Teddy in Paris. May 1968, Place de la République, teeming with demonstrators, black and red flags and slogans everywhere, police cordons fronting the crowds. And when I start to faint, Teddy half carries me towards a cafe, and like a miracle of the Red Sea, the revolutionary multitudes part to let us go through. From then on and throughout the years, I will think of Teddy as a total mensch, a hero I can faint by without fear of being trampled. His friendship, a solid and necessary fact of my life. Over the span of several decades, George and I visit in New York at whichever cafe he has chosen as his HQ. He holds forth on art and politics from a corner of the bar from the Beach Boys' pet sounds to the latest novel by Ross Thomas to poetry, world gossip, he effortlessly slips into the role of a pundit, authority, acumen, and a remarkable quickness rolled into one. Always, we love the typically sharp, witty cadences of his New York speech, quote, boy gets girlish, quote, fuck the odds, accumulate Lulus, unquote, and never cease delighting and finding them echo through his poems in the short poem entitled Salad Days. The sky is wearing a dress and earrings and lipstick and great shoes and from where I look up, no panties. One minute, that's a great fake. Underneath the dressing, a cock and balls is quivering. My God, it's pissing right down on the city. Everybody runs for cover, the men in the men's room and the ladies in the women's. But aside from all of that, George and I love Teddy dearly and miss him, his humor and generosity now every day. Thank you, Louis Warsh, next. So I want to read um, the last pages of this book, Clairview Lie. Um, that was Ted shot at writing an autobiography. Um, I guess it goes up to um, age maybe 23, 24. Um, and Miles sent me the book in maybe 2010, and I felt a total affinity for it. Um, and it gave Ted and I a great reason to meet up. Um, um, we've known each other, probably we met in this room in the late 1960s, but we didn't really see each other in a regular way. And this gave us a reason to do it. Um, and we certainly we talked about getting this book into the world, but um, Ted really just wanted to talk about everything that had ever happened to him. Um, and all the people we knew in common and the trajectory of everybody's lives, of people we knew in their early 20s, and however we'd all grown up and done whatever we'd done. And um, we always found some, in the course of talking, some strange intersections in our life. Um, we were both from New York. He was from Queens. I'm from the Bronx. He went to Queens College. I went to City College, um, where his father taught for like 50 years, economics. Um, yes, 59 years. And, and so Ted certainly knew that landscape very well. And um, um, 
once I told him that I had this job teaching at Long Island University in Brooklyn, and he looked at me and his eyes got sort of wide, and I was teaching in the English department, where I'm still teaching, and um, he said, do you know, um, and, and the people he was asking me if I knew was this couple who taught in the English department, and they turned out to be his aunt and uncle. Do you know these people who I'm referring to? Yes. Um, and he had some very weird things to say about them. Um, <laughs> um, and I, um, well, I'm going, I don't think they're, I don't think they're around anymore, so we, we won't say anything. Um, but he had some, he had some, and my, my eyes just were wide open too because they were suddenly my colleagues and um, I looked at them differently and I think, um, <laughs> They were very odd, um, and um, um, so <laughs> let me let me read um, um, from this. One very odd coincidence is um, in the early 1970s we worked on a, a book together as well for Angel Hair called "Make Sense" with this cover by George Schneeman, and um, it's this poem. It's a long poem, and um, it's one word, uh, sort of a line down the center of the page, one word with space. Just so it, it sort of alters the way, certainly one might read anything. Um, and Clairview Lie um, ends kind of with the description of him writing this poem. So he, he must have written it in his early 20s, but it's just some odd interconnection. Um, Okay, um, so this is the end. I edited it a little just for time. Um, broader horizons. My folks finally relent and get a TV this last year at home in Queens. The TV, by the by, along with endless culture as entertainment consumption, becomes a central household god. The folks moved to a part of Bayside built up on what was Myers Woods, which are the wrecked mansions of early film stars. My dad is involved in an interdepartment political horror show at work, trapped between two power-mad factions. Home is thick with chronic subterranean bickering, disappointment, atmospherics. When my dad comes to help me find an apartment, he makes a cryptic remark in passing how he may have to move in with me. <laughs> All my parents' friends are becoming financially successful. My mother harps on how she'd like a fur coat, blah, blah. <laughs> One day visiting, she's going on, I say to her, you have a good job, you make enough money, why don't you just buy a fur coat yourself? <laughs> I have some idea what this is all about, but maybe I'm making the point. My father's job, shit hits all the fans, and the fans go home. Friends aren't friends, and promotions with salary increases delay. Anyway. Back in legend Manhattan, I'm living at large. Lots of movies, really getting into them, no matter what kind. Sometimes go to two, three a day. Nick and Jerry are involved in underground cinema, and I join them, start seeing plenty of underground films. We spend time talking about, thinking about movies. They make films, I don't. Where Sergei got info from Dickens, I'm getting a lot of ideas from film. 
Try a screenplay idea echoed the first day in my new apartment, walk down to Fifth Avenue to take a bus uptown to school, still read novels, try to in one sitting, still like to read somebody's work chronologically. Chronological organization idea, revelation, discover, read through what sounds to me the clunky sentences of Joseph Conrad, ESL, and how interesting it sounds. The way the lines cut, they pop, especially the secret agent and under Western eyes, perfect for late 60s Warren Commission paranoia lead to late 70s miasma, Elvis's death, Raoul Hilberg's destruction of the European Jews, ways the mind can organize and write with an icicle. In winter 68, close my apartment, go to London and Paris the next six months and totally enjoy the refreshment. May 68 in Paris, friends I meet there, George and Chris, David and Nicole publish some of my work in their Blue Pig Mag. Few years later, start working in something, a single horizontal line, run it vertically down the page, a word to a line. Folks say, where's the Cesara, the line turn I see shouldn't lead to the prose of the line's second half on the next line, the next line, the next line. Organize, that's it. Sit down one day, one word lines down the page. Keep going until this seems the place, most of the time, to stop. Barely know specifically what I have, kind of have general idea, but it makes sense. Call it, makes sense. Just write, don't cut, don't be too maudlin, too fine. Word, meaning, sound. How get here? Nice. Let the white horse go. Thank you. Barrett Watton. Uh, coming to New York today on the plane, I had uh, an experience of catching up with Ted's early work, The Licorice Chronicles. And actually, it's funny that this hasn't been mentioned yet tonight. Um, and I'm even going to suggest, uh, once the textual scholarship on Ted's work has been done, this might have a similar place in his development as the making of Americans had for Gertrude Stein. And what I would, what I would see in this work is how he's thinking about the question of sequence and, and continuity, and yet at the same time working with an incredibly disjunctive range of materials, some of some that I've never seen in poetry, and particularly the poetry of the 1960s. The date of this book is 19, uh, the poems are dated 64 to 69. And there are some moves and jumps there that are 20 years ahead, just in terms of being able to access uh, kinds of material. And then there's the title, Licorice Chronicles. What the hell are Licorice Chronicles? Somebody's gonna have to decode that. The cover struck me in my, you know, coming to New York naivete, as you know, really typically nasty, uh, you know, the kind of thing that, you know, the edginess, you know, there are knives, uh, there are these little crosses, but might be also death marks. Uh, there's a kind of uh, electric nastiness to this cover. Um, and, uh, and then you're, I'm reading along and I, I find something like this. Miss Kit Shit, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. VW Shit, was married today to John L. Samson Lung, 
son of the late Mr. and Mrs. G. Samson Lung, or Lunge, of, of New York. The ICX Rise at Sunrise, Reverend Dr. Sweetnose performed the ex-universal cosmetician grimace ceremony in the nose Christ ex-eater of respectability fishy stars Chun Church in New York. Mirrors of a reception was held in the house of shit and great dew melting from blonde loose-hung lashes, neck, Long Island. Mr. Dew Melting Green on Blue Lawn, shit, who is the chairman of the Your Lips Primed Gray Clamped Between Dog Teeth, board of the House of Shit Gourmet Foods Limited, escorted his daughter. She wore a princess of white flannel alpaca with a thin undercurrent of orange blossom silk in rum sauce, peeking through the delectably tailored seams. And it goes on for, so this is, you know, like I say, this is the shit, really, this book. So I had a similar experience to Kyle uh, Schlesinger being in, being in New York on that same day, actually seeing Ted and then seeing Bill. Uh, and uh, last time I saw Ted, at a conference in Boston, I received a phone call from Kit Robinson in the middle of a s session on surrealism, no less, that Ted Greenwald's health was failing. I made plans to visit as soon as the semester was over. A day was arranged, a plane flight, a hotel booking, and other appointments fell into place. The time was specified for 2 p.m. As the high-value information of nature falls, so the certainty of low-value knowledge rises. A knowledge of commonality is the only knowledge available until it becomes restricted, intractable, unavailable for use. Nature is always an incursion on the commonality of the multitude. Thus, the crowds on weekends at seashores, mountain trails, and parks reflect on it. Death becomes a national park crowded on weekends with self-reflexive, unconscious nature lovers. I was nervous about the event. He had not overprepared. His daughter, Abigail, back from college to help out with the family, answered the door to apartment clutter, kitchen in the background, bookshelves and wardrobes, heated and stuffy for early spring. Ted's on the couch, various oxygen supplying machines and evidence. Ted was a heavy smoker. I recall from numerous occasions. He could not keep his hands away from the next cigarette, one after the other. I don't want to recall the many times I thought, stop doing that. What are you doing to yourself? You've got to quit. I don't want to make that the dominant theme of my memory of our visit, but there it is. Let us pause for an ethical discussion right here of what anyone can say to another about the choices they make or cannot make. So it's about language, how one talks, and the way that talk is embodied as an ethics. It requires breath to make language, so there is the relation to smoking. Death invests a university of high-value knowledge the people do not accede to this university until the knowledge they brought with them is ready to die. We discussed You Bet, the dedicated typographical, typographic design of which Ted liked. I was interested in the dynamics of repetition and variation in that work and tried to visualize it through a cut and paste repetition of the title phrase in spaced diagonal lines across the cover, interrupted by a typographically, typographically larger instance of the, of the title, You Bet, as if to say it is only a matter of emphasis whether the language we use is a steady background hum 
of multiple repetitions or a single instance where an act of speech declares itself. In the tension between these two modes, Ted's writing clearly is working through. Places where the repetition becomes too dominant, for instance, in the play of repeating lines in works like Exit the Face, I see what amounts to a holding pattern, but also a way of maintaining a relationship to language so that its declarative moments, a disclosure of being and language perhaps, cannot fail to come forth. In one sense, then, language is like smoking, a repetitious habit, but many human activities are like that. We cannot fail to repeat. Death rides the waves of entertainment to become famous. And so the people say, famous as death. Once dead, one can only become as famous as death. There is no development in these thoughts, only stasis. Poetry is the thought that conveys no development, only a break between one thing and the next. The people think the little death is what will make them famous. Dying, we break into things that last forever. It's time that the visit ends. It's getting taxing. I tell him I'm planning to hear a reading with Bill Berkson and Kyle Schlesinger at a gallery in Chelsea later that afternoon. Ted tells me that Bill had wanted to visit, but the possibility of antibiotic-resistant bacteria had kept him away. Parting is difficult, but not so hard. I don't remember how I summed it up. Let's keep in touch. But it was certainly a moment without irony. Okay, um, Terrence Winch. Well, it's a, a privilege to be here to uh, remember our great mutual friend, Ted Greenwald, and I, I thank Joan for inviting me up. Um, I first met Ted actually through the mail uh, around 1973, not long after I moved from here to DC. And I, I saw a poem of his, which I now can't remember, in some magazine, and somehow I contacted him and we started corresponding and we hit it off as uh, fellow New Yorkers and poets and whatnot. And he started coming down to DC. Um, and in fact, uh, he came down quite a lot in the 70s and 80s and read in Michael Lally's uh, Pyramid Gallery reading series and Doug Lang's Folio reading series, which a lot of people here uh, also participated in. He read at the Corcoran, et cetera. We became very good friends and kept in touch right up until the end. Um, and I have many similar memories as other people do about Ted. My, my favorite, which I wrote about right after he died, was when the band I was in, in around 1980, uh, we, we had an album come out with a song of mine on it, which was like this pretty heavy, emotional Irish immigration saga. And I was on the phone with Ted and said, Ted said, okay, look, Terry, you got to get this song to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Frank Sinatra's got to do it. And I said, I don't know, Ted, you know, I'm not sure really if this would really be Frank's kind of song. No, 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 it's got, you got to get it to Frank Sinatra. And as I'm sure most of you know, Frank had a huge hit with the song and I became very wealthy. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, I'm going to read uh, two short things. One is uh, a piece of mine from, from that era, from 1976 it was. I'll just read the beginning of this kind of prose poem 
called Lives of the Poets, and then I'll read a short poem of Ted's. Um, Lives of the Poets. I'm here in the chateau, my apartment building. With, I think this, this kind of captures sort of the interconnectedness that went on back in those days between DC and New York, and I should say Bernard Welt, who's mentioned here is a, an old friend of mine, seven or eight years younger than I am, uh, who uh, comes into play. I'm here in the chateau, my apartment building, with the same clothes I had on yesterday. I'm suffering from a bout of unhappiness. I got one phone call today, and it was the wrong number, but I appreciated it anyway. Last night, Bernie Welt told me that Yeats ends his autobiography with something about how life is a preparation for something that never happens. And I said, well, that's because he spent 30 years chasing after Maud Gunn and didn't get her. And Bernie said, yes, but we all chase after Maud Gunn in our own way and don't get her. <laughs> I have certain choices right now. I can smoke a joint, take a bath, do some push-ups, eat some cake, watch TV, read, practice the banjo. The knob fell off the door to my apartment on Saturday as I was leaving to go to the movies with Ted Greenwald. There was no way to pull the door closed, so Ted suggested hammering a big nail into the door. <laughs> Actually, he didn't suggest it, he just did it. <laughs> Ted likes to assume a take charge attitude. The next night, after Ted had gone back to New York, I was showing Bernie the Greenwald nail when Bernie, in his bright and shiny whiz kid way, said, why didn't you just use this? And he pointed out to me that I had a knocker on my door, which could have easily been used to pull the door closed instead of the nail. <laughs> I decided to smoke the joint. It's December 23rd, 1976. And then um, the, f the following year, the next year, 1977, um, along with some other friends, we started a press called Titanic Books and published this native land, which has come up several times tonight, which I think is interesting because we only printed 200 copies, and I have several of them, and there's several more in here. So, Anyway, um, I know Charles read this uh, earlier, but um, in opposition to the tyranny of alphabetical order, uh, I too am going to read it. <laughs> Off the hook. He is gone now taking his body with him, when all the time I thought it was the beauty of his mind I loved. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.